The fifth edition of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, better known as the DSM-5, was released at the American Psychiatric Association's annual meeting in May 2013. It's been over 10 years since an updated version of this manual has been released. There has been much anticipation and controversy over the many changes and updates that have been incorporated into the latest edition, especially those related to autism spectrum disorder. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakuski, your host. And with me today to help us understand these updates in the criteria of the diagnosis and classification of autism spectrum disorder is Dr. David Kupfer, chair of the DSM-5 task force, and Dr. Catherine Lord of the Neurodevelopmental Disorders Workgroup. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Paul. It's nice to be here. So, Dr. Kupfer, could you give us a little bit of background on your professional experience? Well, my professional experience has been as a clinician and as a researcher in a number of areas, and particularly in mood disorders. And I've also uh, chaired the Department of Psychiatry for 26 years at the University of Pittsburgh. And I've been involved with the development of the DSM as well as a number of conferences that occurred earlier, uh, really now for the last 13 years. And I was involved in the previous edition of the DSM as well. So, Dr. Lord, could you give us a little bit of your professional background as well? Yes, I'm a clinical psychologist and the director of a new autism center, which is a joint effort of Cornell, Columbia, and New York Presbyterian Hospital. And I've been working with children and adults with autism for actually 35 years, um, working in a variety of places and from a variety of approaches. Um, I was also a member of the DSM-4 Autism uh, Committee and and do clinical research about diagnosis and about how to best describe the differences among children and adults with autism as well as similarities. So, Dr. Kupfer, as I mentioned in my opening, it's been over a decade since the last edition of the DSM was released. Can you talk about the task force and how this new edition was created? Well, as you pointed out, well, we've been really working on this uh, well over a decade. And what began uh, after a series of uh, white papers that a number of uh, research and clinicians put together uh, around 2002, 2003, is that a series of 13 scientific conferences uh, supported by the National Institutes of Health and WHO uh, occurred around the world, uh, including one on uh, on autism, uh, which uh, Kathy Lord was involved in. And this activity involved over 400 international scientists and clinicians, and there was a series of monographs that were produced and, and also, I would say, uh, 10 books that were produced. One of the important things that came out of that then was the appointment of the task force and the 13 work groups uh, which included a number of uh, individuals that really crossed a series of disciplines in neuroscience, biology, statistics, epidemiology, and nosology, and public health. And that group of 160 individuals uh, became the members of the task force and the work groups and the various study groups uh, for this job, which was really to look over everything that had been done since the previous DSM uh, and make a series of recommendations uh, for both uh, small changes as well as major changes. One of the major changes that was recommended uh, as a result of this development process was that some important, if you will, organizational changes to the way that we think about autism and autism spectrum disorders was necessary. And what emerged from that was a series of, of changes uh, in the criteria and a way of thinking about uh, the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, which we think uh, represents a considerable advance 
And we release this really for discussion by the public as well as advocacy groups and patients and family groups, as Kathy knows, uh, several years really prior to the final approval for going ahead with this series of changes. Uh, so this is very similar to what we did in other areas uh, of diagnoses within the whole mental disorder area uh, that we felt needed uh, a major uh, adjustment. So, Dr. Lord, there are many updates to the DSM-5, especially with regards to autism. There appears to be two major areas of change. I'd like to talk about the first area. The new criteria collapses previously distinct autism subtypes, like PDD-NOS and Asperger syndrome, into one unifying diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Can you let us know why that change was made and what that means to individuals carrying those subtype diagnoses currently? Yes. I, I think that where we started from is the idea that people with autism do have some things in common as a group, but they also have tremendous individual differences. And I think in, in previous editions, or particularly DSM-4, the idea was that perhaps we could better describe those individual differences by having these categories or subcategories within the overall PDD diagnosis of Asperger's PDD-NOS autism, and then also there's a number of others. Um, but what became clear over the years was that clinicians use these terms in very different ways and that the same child could get three different diagnoses of autism, PDD, NOS, and Asperger's from three clinicians, you know, who were literally within blocks of each other in New York or South Dakota or Florida. So there was a lot of concern about confusion around these particular subtypes. Um, I think we were particularly concerned that in some states, um, people did not have access to services if they did not get an autism diagnosis, if they got a PDD, NOS, or Asperger's diagnosis, and that families were sometimes uh, left in a situation where the diagnosis of Asperger's or PDD, NOS was considered to be less stigmatizing and associated with more hope. On the other hand, their child could actually get services if they had an autism diagnosis. Um, so I think that starting from those concerns, both about access to services and also about the really extraordinary unreliability of these diagnoses across different clinicians, we decided to focus on having one spectrum but then identify dimensions on that spectrum, which were both core features, the social communication deficits and restricted and repetitive behaviors and interests, and also other dimensions that make a huge difference in a child or adult's life, like their ability to speak or understand language, intellectual disabilities, and also medical features. So the idea was to be more straightforward about the fact that right now, autism spectrum disorders are a neurobiologically based disorder, but we can't break them up into little groups that actually mean anything. They mean things to individuals, but they don't, those titles don't, like Asperger's and PDD, don't mean the same thing to different people. So it's better to just talk about the whole group and then talk about things that do mean the same thing to people, like how good is this child's language and how good are they at nonverbal problem solving and to just be more direct about those differences um, within the context of the overall disorder. The only thing I would add to Kathy's excellent description is that this represented a wonderful model of what we sought to do in a variety of important disorders and I must say that the work that came out of 
the autism spectrum disorder really represents a, an excellent example of uh, a major thrust of what we were trying to do with all of DSM-5. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Paul Rakuski, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Kupfer, chair of the DSM-5 Task Force, and Dr. Catherine Lord of the Neurodevelopmental Disorders Workgroup. We're talking about the fifth edition of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, better known as DSM-5. So we talked about the criteria collapse, and I want to talk about the second major area of change, and that was previously three definitions, social impairment, communication deficits, and repetitive restricted behaviors. That has now been reduced to two categories, social communication impairment and repetitive restrictive behaviors. Why was this reduction made, and how will it affect future diagnoses? Well, we hope that it will make future diagnoses more straightforward. Um, and again, pull out of communication the idea of expressive and receptive language. That is, how much does a child actually understand, or adult, and how much can they say? Um, and pull that out because that's not an issue that's specific at all to autism. It's relevant to many, many different disorders. So what the concern was there was that many aspects of nonverbal communication are social. So it's very hard, and it was quite arbitrary in DSM-4, whether a particular behavior like eye contact or vocalizing without words like going, mm-hmm, or gestures or facial expressions should be considered social or should be considered communication. And it, it really ended up being just who put what where in the, the original DSM-4, how something was organized. And there's a lot of research literature that also suggests that basically Nonverbal communication is a very important feature in autism, as are particular aspects of language, um, but they group together. So the idea was to pull most of the communication criteria from DSM-4 and put them into the social communication criteria that's combined for DSM-4. On the other hand, there are unique features of communication in autism, like verbal rituals, a child who has to say goodbye to everybody before they leave, or stereotype speech, a child who takes phrases that they've heard from television and repeats them, sometimes appropriately and sometimes out of context. And those kinds of repetitive aspects of communication are now put into the repetitive behavior category, which actually expands that category and, and makes it clearer. So on the whole, the only thing that is not in DSM-5 that was in DSM-4 was a failure to speak. And the idea, which no longer is a criteria or one possible route to getting an autism diagnosis, the idea is that failing to speak is so important that it shouldn't be put in the middle of an autism diagnosis. It's a whole other issue that should be addressed through a communication disorder, language disorder diagnosis, which can accompany an autism diagnosis when it's appropriate. But isn't appropriate for many people with autism who are quite verbally fluent. So with all these revisions, will individuals with a current diagnosis on the autism spectrum lose their diagnosis because of the changes in the diagnostic criteria? We expect very, very few people to lose diagnoses. I mean, and in fact, that, that is a, a concern and, and that's been raised by many people. One of the things that is now in the DSM-5 criteria is that if you have an existing clear diagnosis of any DSM-4 um, PDD, you are automatically grandfathered in 
um, to a DSM-5 autism spectrum diagnosis. But on the whole, I mean, the other change in DSM-5 was that rather than having specific examples that served as criteria for a diagnosis, such as lack of shared enjoyment, what we tried to do in DSM-5 was describe general principles, for example, deficits in nonverbal social communication, deficits in social reciprocity, and then provide some examples but not um, inclusive. So the idea is that a clinician and a parent would work together to see if they can come up with examples for a child or an adult of a given age and given ability level that represented that principle. And we hope that way that we will actually better describe more people. We'll do a better job with girls and women. We'll do a better job with very young children and with adults than we were able to do in DSM-4 where we were trying to pinpoint in the principle the, the example at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. And I think the other thing uh, that uh, Kathy should underscore is that a number of studies already have been done, uh, some even, uh, if you will, published uh, uh, as early as uh, last year, which indicate that uh, we will continue to be able to identify uh, at least 91% of the children in one study uh, who currently had a DSM-4 P uh, PDD diagnosis. And so it's very unlikely that uh, we will, uh, in a sense, lose people uh, inappropriately. I think uh, we will continue to monitor this, and we will continue to monitor this with a number of important advocacy groups in the autism area. I think the one warning for families is that in studies where people have done very, very brief assessments and followed the DSM-4 checklist, then the DSM-4 checklist doesn't include all the things that DSM-5 does. And so it is very important for families to look over the DSM-5 criteria and to be sure that they have a clinician who takes enough time to talk to them and meet their child and look at those criteria because it does require some attention to the fact that there are new criteria there, and you can't just go from the old ones. But the data really suggests that no, no more children will be lost than were lost in, in DSM-4. And, and we also really hope with this more individualized approach where you come up with your own examples that we can do an even better job of making sure that people aren't underdiagnosed. So, so we are really encouraging clinicians to read the DSM-5. My thanks again to my guest, Dr. David Kupfer, chair of the DSM-5 Task Force, and Dr. Catherine Lord of the Neurodevelopmental Disorders Workgroup. We've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.